Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to turn to Exodus 1. That's where we will begin, Exodus 1. We're going to continue our ongoing series in the book of Exodus. We will be in chapter 8, verses 16 through 32, but I want to begin in chapter 1. You know, Hebrew narrative is an interesting genre of Scripture. It's interesting by way of comparison even to other genres that we find in the Old and New Testament. You know, for example, let's take the New Testament epistles, Paul's letters, and the other general epistles. When those authors write, they are often very explicit in what they're trying to convey and what they're trying to say. They're very logical. A lot of times they will explicitly say the point they are trying to get across. You know, if you turn to a Romans 5, like Paul just makes it crystal clear that he is laying out benefits of justification. So it's real easy in one sense to understand where the writer is going. You could even say that's true uh, to some degree in Hebrew poetry. We saw that this morning in Psalm 103. I mean, David, as he writes, the, the, the psalmist, I mean, he's just making explicit statements that are absolutely crystal clear to the point he's trying to get across. When you come to Hebrew and you come to Hebrew narrative, it isn't quite apparent. It isn't as explicit what the author is trying to convey in terms of meaning, maybe theology and doctrine, although it's definitely there. So don't take it that I'm saying it's not there because it absolutely is. But the point of Hebrew narrative is to explain and tell us a story, the plot. And we've seen that in our study of the book of Genesis, right? We spent over a year in the book of Genesis and we just worked through that story. And as the story unfolded, we really began to discern the main plot and the themes and the doctrine and the structure and all of those realities. And as we get into the book of Exodus, the same is true as well, that although maybe not explicitly said this is the point, we have begun to discern the point of Exodus. So I want to begin in chapter 1, and this is just a brief flyover, and we'll get into chapter 8 and spend most of our time there. We begin seeing what I call the knowing motif, this pattern woven all through Exodus where we see the word know and how Moses as narrator is showing us that he is making God known to the people that participated in the Exodus story, but even those of us as readers who are reading the story, and specifically here in Omega, those of us who are studying the story together, will be in Exodus for the rest of this year, all of next year, and probably a little bit more just based on how we've broken down the schedule. But I want you to see the knowing motif, and this will make much more sense as we continue to work through the plagues. But look at chapter 1, verse 8. Remember that phrase that statement that we're all familiar with. Verse 8, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. So immediately from the beginning here, there's this idea that Pharaoh, the people in Egypt, those who are hostile to God, hostile to God's people, 
they, they, don't, they don't know God and they don't know God's people. Now, if you turn over to chapter five, as we have begun working through the 10 plagues or the 10 strikes, notice how this plague portion of Exodus begins. Chapter five, verse two. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? And then that classic statement, I do not know the Lord. So this motif continues. We've seen it in plague number one. We'll see it again in the plagues we will work through today. But just go forward to chapter 14 and the parting of the Red Sea. Chapter 14, the parting of the Red Sea. If you look down at verse 18, why is this scene happening? Why did the people come to the shore of the Red Sea? Why are the Egyptians coming behind them to attack them and take them back to slavery? Look at verse 18. So that the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. Chapter 14, verse 18. So this idea of knowing God unfolds throughout Exodus. And in particular, in the 10 plagues, the 10 strikes, the 10 blows that they're sometimes even called, God is making himself known to all of the characters in Egypt. That includes Pharaoh. That includes all of the Egyptians. That includes the Hebrews or the Israelites that are in Goshen. We'll see that today. But God is making himself known to those who were in those events in real time. But the same would be true again for us. God is making himself known on the pages of Exodus so we might know who he is and worship him. So go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 8 as we begin looking at the third and the fourth plagues today. As you recall, in the first plague, God turned the waters of the Nile to blood because of Pharaoh's refusal And that expression is used often. He refuses to let my people go. In addition to the Nile turning to blood, all the water sources in Egypt were turned to blood. So we're looking at a widespread catastrophe. The last time we were together, in the second plague, God sent a plague of frogs. A plague of frogs, right? And it wasn't just a few dozen but these frogs covered the entire land. And here's a chart that I think we'll continue to use just to sort of keep us in line, a trajectory of where we've been and where we're going as we study the plagues. But for today, for the third and fourth time, at the command of God, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and they ask him to release the Hebrews from slavery. But as we'll see, and as you already know, Pharaoh refuses and God responds with the third and the fourth plagues, plagues of gnats and plague of flies. But why does God do this? Well, this is that knowing motif. The primary reason God is doing this is so that God will reveal himself to Pharaoh and the others so that they will know that there is no one like Yahweh God. In fact, look at chapter 8, verse 22. You can see that that point is clear. At the end of verse 22 of chapter 8, 
The text tells us, in order that you may know that I am Yahweh. And we'll see the context of that when we get there. So that brings us to plague number three in our ongoing study. And we'll call that plague the plague of gnats. The plague of gnats. And that'll be verses 16 through 19. So as with the previous plagues, this plague begins, or this section about this plague begins with a private conversation, God's private message to Moses for Aaron. Let's look at verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth that it may become gnats through all the land of Egypt. So as with the previous two plagues, and you'll see this as we continue to move forward in the story, this plague begins with an introductory formula. <clears throat> the Lord said to Moses. And as I noted for you last week, this highlights the fact that each and every plague is under the sovereign care of the Almighty God. This is Moses' reason for starting each description of a plague this way. This is to identify that this isn't the doing of the Egyptian gods, lowercase g. This isn't the doing of the magicians or the sorcerers amongst the land, but that each consecutive plague is brought forth by Yahweh God. He is under, or he is over all and in complete control of everything that happens. Uh, these plagues or strikes are not merely natural events. They're not sorcery. They're not trickery done by Moses or Aaron or even the work of the magicians, although they've participated to some degree in the first couple plagues. But in addition to the introductory formula, God tells Moses about the plague prior to its fulfillment. Remember, we talked about this last week. It's interesting, as these plagues are introduced, they're not necessarily introduced in real time. But we get, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we get insight into divine conversations that happen beforehand. Basically, God pulls Moses to the side and says, hey, hey Moses, look, I'm going to go ahead and tell you what's going to happen. And then I'm going to tell you to go tell somebody to do something. And then when you tell somebody to do something, that something is going to come to pass. In terms of Hebrew narrative, I mentioned this, we are in a privileged, elevated position. We, we sit above all the characters in the story because we know gnats are coming. <laughs> they don't. So here in particular, we know another plague is coming long before Aaron does and long before the rest of the people in Egypt. So God tells Moses to tell Aaron, and you can see it here in the text, to stretch out his staff and to strike the dust of the earth so that it might become gnats. Again, you'll notice Moses brings in his staff in his hand. This motif that goes back to Exodus 4 to establish in our minds that it is God's power, it is God's sovereignty, it is God's providence, it is his supernatural work that's bringing about the plagues. He's just empowered Moses and Aaron as a means to bring these things forward as a human instrument. Now notice, Aaron is supposed to strike the dust of the earth and it will become gnats. 
Now in the NSB, this is translated as a plague of gnats. But if you go just do a little research on where the commentators land on this, you will see widespread disagreement on what this plague actually is. Some argue for gnats. Others argue for lice. In fact, if you look into the writings of Josephus and the ancient Jewish historians, they all land on the fact that this is definitely a plague of lice. Others go with mosquitoes. And some even say fleas or sand flies. So we can't be sure of what type of insect is in view here, but we can be sure that all of the dust in the land turned into a specific insect that would be quite disturbing. And out of the plagues that we've seen so far, this plague is the first one to be airborne. So this is Yahweh's private message to Moses for Aaron. God once again telling Moses in advance what is going to transpire. Next, we come to God's public message to all of Egypt. So we move from a private message to a public message to all of Egypt. The first part of this public message is the actual plague itself. The plague in verse 17. Notice how verse 17 begins. They did so. So that's telling us there's a sense of immediacy with what God told Moses to tell Aaron. In other words, when Aaron was told what to do, what did Aaron do? Yeah, he he went immediately to Pharaoh and did what was supposed to be done. Look at verse 17. They did so. And Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. And all the dust of the earth became gnats throughout all the land of Egypt. So as I noted, there is a, uh, there's an idea of swiftness or immediacy. In fact, Moses does this as he tells us the story. He just leaves out the entire conversation between him and Pharaoh where he would have asked Pharaoh to let the people go. That's most likely what he did. He just assumes that it happened, and it did. And then verse 17 essentially jumps right into the plague. Aaron stretches out his hand with the staff. He strikes the dust of the earth, and it all becomes gnats. And the first plague, water was turned to blood. Aaron took his staff and struck the water, and it became blood. Here in this plague, he strikes the dust and it becomes gnats. This striking of the water and the land demonstrates Yahweh's supreme dominance over the entire world, the land and the sea, all the earth. In fact, you'll remember in our study of the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 10, where there's an angel that's about to make a proclamation for God. Remember, he's standing on the shore. He's standing with one foot in the sand and one foot on the water, showing his, his representing, rather, God's dominance over all of the earth. That's exactly what we see in these plagues. God is dominating not only the sea, not only the water, but he's dominating the land. Notice verse 17, Moses adds that there were gnats on man and beast. So man was affected by this plague. One writer says, in some ways this plague is like that of the frogs that preceded it. 
Both involved the miraculous production of a massive superabundance of an animal with the effect of annoying and disturbing the Egyptians, but without serious devastation otherwise. Oh, we understand this in Texas, do we not? With bugs and gnats and mosquitoes. They are annoying, I heard that. They are very, very annoying. Yeah, the Egyptians could have used a little bug spray from Home Depot at this point, but we understand this reality. So all man in Egypt was affected by these gnats. Notice here Moses adds in verse 17, and beasts were affected by the plague. Now fish were affected by the first plague. They died. There's no mention of animals being affected by the second plague of frogs, but here we are told that man and beast were affected by the gnats. So that's Moses' general description of the plague. But now he gives us a key insight about the magicians. The magicians, verse 18. The magicians tried with their secret arts to bring forth gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. The good old magicians show up once again in the plague narrative. Uh, so far, we've had three plagues and we've had three appearances from the magicians. But you'll notice, just as we read, which by the way, it's interesting that they just want to keep bringing more of the plague, right? <laughs> they don't actually reduce the number of frogs or gnats. They want to bring more. But you'll notice that they run into a predicament here. They run into a predicament. They tried their secret arts. They tried their sorceries. They tried to copycat and mimic the plague like they had previously done. But they couldn't. So this is the first time that they really don't have full-blown engagement with the plague. Their expertise in trickery their magicianship, if you will, finally came to an end. They were exposed. Uh, they were frauds. Uh, not only were they unable to bring forth gnats, just like the previous two plagues, they couldn't reverse the situation either. Notice the second half of verse 18, but they could not, so there were gnats on man and beast. Notice Moses' repetition there. He just puts an exclamation point on it. Yet the magicians show up, the sorcerers show up, they try their craftiness, but the gnats remained on man and beast. But then out of nowhere, the magicians make a shocking profession. They make a shocking profession. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of of God. The magicians knew they had been outdone, and they knew there was no escaping it. They profess that such mighty works were done by the finger of God. Now, to be sure, there's been a lot of discussions of why the magicians used this type of language, why they used uh, this type of expression. Of course, they didn't mean the literal finger of God, but they did certainly mean to intend and communicate their understanding of a God's power as it relates to the plague. 
And they're identifying this cod as being associated with the Hebrews. They knew that the Hebrews' God was acting supernaturally because they had no ability to copycat the plagues. See, in their mind, they thought that what had previously happened was something of the natural order. They didn't necessarily think it was supernatural. But now they get to the point where they understand this isn't of the natural order because we can't even mimic something like this. So to summarize it this way, we don't look at the magician's statement as a source of theology, who God is. Instead, their profession is meant to communicate their awareness of a Hebrew God and his ability to work miraculously. It was common during that day for Egyptian gods and the many references to their power and to their acts to be labeled as done by their fingers. So again, in the mind of the magicians here, they're, try- they're really trying to come to grips with all of the Egyptian gods and sometimes language and expression that was used of their power. And now they're coming face to face with the Hebrew God and all of this supernatural power. So it makes sense that they say, Yes, the Hebrew God, he is doing all of these supernatural things by his finger. By the way, we see this expression later on in two important places. In Exodus 31, we'll see this later, we see that the Ten Commandments were written with the finger of God. So there's a connection there with both of them coming from the power of God. That's, that's the idea here. But there's even another reference in the New Testament. In fact, Luke chapter 11, our Lord Jesus Christ uses this very expression. He says, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God is upon you. As Jesus is alluding back to the power of God in the book of Exodus, and he's saying, it's by that power that I'm casting out demons. I'm God. So the finger of God, although the Egyptians are certainly using it sort of in conjunction with their pantheon of gods, we see the biblical writers and even our Lord Jesus Christ using the finger of God expression as one that identifies the power of the almighty God, the one true God. When we move on from the magicians to close out this plague with the narrator's comment, a comment from Moses. Now, I mentioned this last week, and we'll see this with every plague. Every single plague ends with a comment about Pharaoh's heart. Remember the goal of the plagues. The primary goal of the plagues is for God to make himself known to Pharaoh. And he keeps doing it, and as we keep moving along, how does Pharaoh respond every time? His heart was hardened. Again, this is a narrator comment. I mean, this is Moses under divine inspiration giving us a comment about Pharaoh's heart. (laughs) It's amazing insight into the heart of Pharaoh as it continues to be hardened. It's interesting here, not only does he not listen to the supernatural display that God is putting before him, but he he doesn't even listen to the magicians, his own people. They recognized that the finger of God was at work, but Pharaoh did not. His heart was strengthened. It became heavy, stronger. He buckled down. 
He gripped the front seat and would not let the people go. He wasn't changing his mind. Notice the end of verse 19, as the Lord had said. God said this would happen, and guess what? (laughs) It's happening. So that is the plague of gnats. Let's now look, as we continue to move forward within the 10 plagues, let's look at the plague of flies. The plague of flies. Well, as with the previous plagues, this one begins with another private conversation from God to Moses for Pharaoh. That's verses 20 to 23. So in the first part of this conversation, we see a command. You follow along as I read verses 20 and 21. Now the Lord said, To Moses, rise early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh as he comes out of the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you do not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and on your servants and on your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians will be full of swarms of flies and also the ground on which they dwell. So this plague is presented to us in typical fashion. Notice again, verse 20, the introductory formula. Again, establishing God as the primary mover of the plague. This plague is no different from the rest in the sense that Yahweh is in charge, Yahweh is running the show, and that Yahweh is in control. Again, we sit as readers in a privileged position We know what is going on before it actually happens. This is prophetic in one sense. So God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh early in the morning and that he is to present himself to Pharaoh as Pharaoh makes his way up out of the water. Now, a couple weeks ago in Plague One, as Arnold took us through the narrative, we saw this exact thing happen. We've already seen Moses meet Pharaoh like this before in chapter 7, verse 15. By the way, it's interesting. Listen to this here. In plagues 1, 4, and 7, each of the plagues begin with an outdoor conversation with Moses going to Pharaoh coming out of the water. In plagues 2, 5, and 8, they begin in Pharaoh's courts. And in plagues three, six, and nine, there is no confrontation mentioned at all. And there's a quiz over all of that next week. (laughs) Now, the point being is that this is meant to demonstrate the structure and the order with which God is working. God's not flying off the cuff here, making choices as Pharaoh hardens his heart. God has strategically decreed and orchestrated this from before the foundation of the world. At the same time, not only do we see orchestration in the character of God, but we see orchestration in the written narrative. We see orchestration in the written narrative. If you work through the plagues, you'll notice how precise they are written. And what I mean by precise, they are written in such a way where there's variation in each part of the story as you work through each one. no, no plague, in, in a sense, is rehearsed in the same exact way. 
Of course, there are similarities. We've seen that, the introductory formula, uh, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and those things. But you'll notice even just by degree of length, look at verses 16 through 19 covers the third plague and verses 20 through 32 covers the fourth plague. So there's differences there. But there is great order and structure here. So Moses is to tell Pharaoh that if he doesn't let the people go, then swarms of flies will be sent across the land. Now again, you'll, if you do any research on this, you'll find that there's a lot of discussion on what type of flies. Again, it's hard to be sure, but I, I don't really think that's the point. Most lean towards flies or insects that bite. And actually most land on mosquitoes here. So again, we get that in Texas with mosquitoes. We understand the annoyance of mosquitoes. So that's the command that Moses was to give to Pharaoh. Let's next look at a distinction. So this is brand new. Something like this has not happened in the plagues before. A critical distinction. Notice here in verse 22. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen. And again, this is God telling Moses in advance that This is an advance. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people are living so that no swarms of flies will be there in order that you may know that I, the Lord, am in the midst of the land. Verse 23, I will put a division between my people and your people. And tomorrow this sign will occur. So God tells Moses that he is to tell Pharaoh that if he doesn't let the people go, that God will send a plague of flies, that's clear. But in addition, God also wants Pharaoh to know that none of the Hebrews would be afflicted by this plague. Look at verse 22 again. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people are living so that no swarms of flies will be there. Now it's a good thing that the magicians bowed out last plague. (laughs) They conceded on the last plague, and that's good for them, (laughs) because not a chance they would be able to replicate or keep up with what God is doing here. So not only is God sending a plague of flies all across the land, across that land, in one particular land piece, God will not allow flies to reside there. He will preserve his people from them, in particular the Hebrews living in the land of Goshen. By the way, now that this has been introduced to the plagues, we will see this in the plague of pestilence, boils, hail, darkness, and the firstborn. So God making clear-cut distinctions is just getting started. But this is the first time God does this, and it's the first time Goshen is mentioned in Exodus, but you can jot this down to review it. According to Genesis 45.10, when Jacob and his family moved to Egypt, they moved where? I bet you can guess, Goshen. They moved to Goshen. So this is where they were residing prior to slavery and even in the midst of it. So God says in advance that he will keep his people from having to suffer through this plague. Now let's actually get to the plague. And here's just a picture of 
where Goshen would have been, similar to this region, maybe a little further north, but just give you an idea of the massive land piece that would have been set aside for the Hebrews and the swarms of flies. So the flies are coming, and we see this in God's public message to all of Egypt. So we've moved from a private conversation beforehand to now right in the middle of the plague. God is publicly displaying his message through this plague. Verse 24, then the Lord did so. Again, immediacy. This happened quickly. There was no lag of time between. And notice verse 24, and there came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and the houses of his servants, and the land was laid waste because of the swarms of flies in all the land of Egypt. Now, verse 24, just one verse describes the plague in real time. Just one verse. If you look back and just scan your eyes over verses 20 to 23, it's a conversation. Jump forward to verses 25 and 29. Just scan your eyes over those verses. That's another conversation. Again, this is another prominent feature of Hebrew narrative. This is how Hebrew narrative works. Although all of verses 20 to 32, the fourth plague, although all of those verses are important, more time is given to the conversations than the actual plague. Does that mean that the plague doesn't matter? No, it absolutely does. In in fact, in the first conversation, the plague is laid out. Then it's narrated for us here in verse 24. So the plague does matter. But what Moses is trying to do is draw us into the conversations. He's slowing down time as fast as he possibly can. He slows it down to these verses. You see how devastating this plague was. Notice it says the land was laid waste. Laid waste or corrupted. This is the same word used in Genesis 6 when God looked out across all of the earth and all that he saw was the corrupt hearts of all men. All the earth was corrupt. Same word here. So there's a stark contrast between what is happening in Egypt, which is total destruction, and what the Hebrews are very much looking forward to in the promised land. So plague after plague after plague, Egypt is destroyed. It's wrecked. It's laid waste. It's corrupt. But in contrast, God has already told his people that he would bring them to a certain land, part of the Abrahamic covenant. Land, seed, and blessing. Here the focus is on land. God will bring his people to land. Turn back to Exodus chapter 3. So as all of Egypt is becoming corrupt and the land is being destroyed and obliterated and God is making himself known, in contrast, throughout the narrative, God is also reminding his people that corruption and a wasteland is not what is in view for them in the future. Look at chapter 3. Verse 8, as God makes himself known to Moses at the burning bush, he begins to describe this land where he's taking the people. Notice verse 8, it is a land flowing with 
milk and honey. Milk and honey. Turn back to Exodus 8. So God's people are looking forward to the promised land that will flow with milk and honey. But not so for Egypt, not so for Pharaoh, not so for the Egyptians. Little by little, over a year's time, all of Egypt will be destroyed. And that is highlighted in particular in this fourth plague of flies. Just to sort of get in our mind what's happening in this fourth plague, Douglas Stewart says, people couldn't eat without ingesting flies. They couldn't sleep without flies covering their bodies. They couldn't work for having to swap flies and or because they couldn't see well through the swarms. Their skin was even welted with fly bites. Well, such devastation that everyone was experiencing except for the Hebrews in Goshen, it leads to Pharaoh's various responses to Moses and Aaron. Pharaoh's various responses. So we get one verse that describes the plague unfolding, and now we move in to another conversation. Here we find Pharaoh's various responses. Bless Pharaoh's hardened heart. He doesn't know what to do. (laughs) He doesn't know what to do. I think he is in a little bit of a disbelief that this, to some degree and extent, keeps happening. So he gives a couple responses here. Let's, Let's look at the first response. Response number one. How's Pharaoh gonna act here? Well, verse 25, Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron. That's a good start, by the way. That's a good start. He calls for Moses and Aaron and said, go sacrifice to your God. That's also a good start. But notice, within the land. So Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron. He says, go sacrifice to your God within the land. So in Pharaoh's first response here, he's looking to compromise with Moses and Aaron. This plague has been difficult. So he looks to make a settlement, if you will. He says that Moses and Aaron and the rest of the Hebrews, they can go and make sacrifices to God, but he says they have to do that within the land. In other words... I'm not letting you go out into the wilderness, which is what you've been requesting for three days. Remember, that, that's sort of been the request. Pharaoh, let me take the people. We'll go to the wilderness. We'll sacrifice for three days. Well, Pharaoh allows the sacrifice, but says, you're going to have to do that here. Look at verse 26. Moses said, it is not right to do so. For we will sacrifice to the Lord our God what is an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice what is an abomination to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? Verse 27. We must go a three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he has commanded us. 
So Moses outright rejects Pharaoh's offer because staying in Egypt isn't part of the divine plan. The promised land is in view. The land flowing with milk and honey is in view. God has raised up Moses to be the human instrument to lead people there. Notice for the first time in Exodus, in verse 26, the word abomination is used. Moses said it would be detestable, loathsome, an abomination if they were to sacrifice in the land. By the way, this is the same word used in Genesis when the Egyptians describe how they loathe shepherds. Moses says, look, this, this is an abomination to our God if we were to sacrifice here in the land of Egypt. Moses, as you saw, gives a shrewd response. It's brilliant, and it is respectful. He basically says, one, if we do sacrifices in your land, you guys will be offended. Then he says, two, not only will you be offended, but you will be so offended that you will stone us to death. And then three, he says, and our God has commanded us to leave Egypt and make sacrifices elsewhere. And Moses was right. Pharaoh knows it. So Pharaoh drops response number one. <laughs> He's moving to another plan. And here's where we find response number two. Verse 28, Pharaoh said, so he sort of collected himself here. <laughs> I will let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you shall not go very far away. Make supplication for me. Then Moses said, behold, I am going out from you and I shall make supplication to the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people tomorrow. Only do not let Pharaoh deal deceitfully again and not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So in verses 28 and 29, Pharaoh negotiates with Moses. Okay, you want to go sacrifice to your God in the wilderness? Do as you wish, but don't go very far. Oh, and by the way, please make supplication on my behalf that these flies might leave me and my people. You know, so, so Pharaoh, he's sort of on the fly, no pun intended, coming up with uh, reasons and he's deliberating within his own heart to try and come up with ways that he can appease Moses, appease Aaron, all of the people, but more importantly, appease God, where if he just lets the people go for a little bit, these flies will go away. So he asked Moses, hey, plead on my behalf. Go to the Lord, go to God and plead. Notice Moses' response. He emphatically responds, behold, by saying that he would pray to Yahweh on behalf of Pharaoh. Look at the end of verse 29. But here's part of the prayer. Only do not let Pharaoh deal deceitfully again and not letting the people go sacrifice to the Lord. So not only does Moses request the plague be done, but he also requests that Pharaoh act upright. Basically, let your yes be yes and your no be no is what Moses will say he's gonna do. 
So Pharaoh throws out that response, and Moses himself responds, and he says, I will go to the Lord in prayer. And that brings us to Moses' private prayer to God. Verse 30. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and made supplication to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and he did not let the people go. Again, Moses leaves Pharaoh's presence and goes to Yahweh in prayer. We saw that last week. That happened at the end of the second plague. He makes supplication for Pharaoh. He intercedes for him. That word supplication means to entreat or to pray. That's the same word Moses prayed or the same word Moses used when he prayed for God to remove the frogs. And that's exactly what happened. Look at the end of verse 31. After Moses prayed to remove the flies, we're told here that not one remained. But as you know and as you expect, verse 32, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and he did not let the people go. Now, this is the first time in these four plagues that we do not see the phrase, as the Lord had said. Plagues 1, 2, and 3, as the Lord had said, that expression had been there to demonstrate that Pharaoh's hardening of heart was under his divine sovereign control. Now, for the first time in this plague, plague number 4, we are told that Pharaoh himself hardens his own heart. So what is the big picture? What is the big point of the third and the fourth plagues? The gnats and the flies. What's the point? Well, it's the same point as the others. It's back where we started. It's about God making himself known. Look at chapter 8, verse 22, and this is where we will end. referring to the distinction that God made between Pharaoh's people and God's people. Notice, but on that day, the day of the plague, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people are living so that no swarms of flies will be there. Now, I understand that one of the primary points of that is for the Hebrews to not be affected by the plague. God is a compassionate God. I get that. But notice the reason we're told here. No flies will be in Goshen. Why? In order that you may know that I, the Lord, am in the midst of the land. We've seen it with plague one, plague two, plague three, and now with plague four. The primary point is that God is making himself known. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for this wonderful story and this wonderful narrative that reveals your mighty acts and your mighty hand and your mighty works in Egypt. The fact that you were making yourself known and we have the privilege of being able to sit back 
and read about you doing just that. We pray that you continue to make yourself known in our own hearts to change our own mind as we continue to go forth in this wonderful and abundant life that you have given us. And not only that, God, we are grateful that you had made yourself known in Jesus Christ who came in this world to save us from our sins. Help us pursue you more. In Jesus' name, amen.